Hello, everybody. Welcome to NIMFET Alumni, a podcast about fashion and culture from three opportunistic one-time NIMFETs. My name is Biz, and I'm joined by Alexi and Sam. And today, for our international debut, we're going to kick this off by summoning the lustful, restless ghost of American apparel. Over the next hour, we will trauma bond over the brand's impact on our impressionable young psyches, reminisce upon its glorious rise and epic fall, and try to identify the contemporary cultural seepage it has left behind. We're recording. (laughs) Now I feel so shy, but... um, (laughs) Wait, I I, uh, guess... You know what? I'll just lead with the question. Okay. So we're here today to talk about something very dear and important to us, which is the rise and fall of... American Apparel and why it's having a comeback right now and I think that going back to our early teens and teens what we all have in common is that American Apparel was a very foundational libidinal memory for all of us at least it was for me what was your first libidinal memory with American Apparel well, definitely growing up on Tumblr, the ads that were always on my dashboard definitely represented like a kind of sexy that was very attractive to me because it was kind of very perverted and like gestural for me. I grew up like since I'm from South Carolina and not from like a place in South Carolina where they have cool malls. I was never allowed. I never could have any American apparel clothes myself. And so when I went to fashion school in New York, I got to my dorm, which was at FIT, which is on 7th Avenue and like West 27th Street. And I remember like the first thing I did was go downstairs across 7th Avenue and like walk to the American Apparel store that was the caddy corner from our <laughs> like block on campus and like well, I walked in there and it was like one of the last weeks that it was around because they were going out of business at that time. And I like found this shirt that I guess I had known about already, which was the black stretchy long sleeve shirt that had a built in choker that like snaked around from the back of the shirt and you had to put it over your head and then like <laughs> down onto your neck. And I was bought that. No, it wasn't a bodysuit. It was like a off-the-shoulder, stretchy, super tight crop top with like a snake-like apparatus at the back that you had to like pull over your head like when you're, um, I don't even know. Like when you put like a sports bra on, it like sucks your head. That's like what it was (laughs) like. Yeah, it was like a rebirthing kind of thing. It was really hard to put on. (laughs) Very condom-like in some ways. But um yeah, and then I wore that to, like, every time I wanted to exude some sort of sexual energy, I wore that to every, like, freshman college event. Like, every, you know, like, the three parties I got invited to. <laughs> or, like, when I wanted to make out with somebody. So, and I had it until, like, very recently. Um, and I really regret giving it away. Oh, Yeah. That's sad. I remember um, going to American Apparel a lot when I was – we would drive to San Antonio to visit my grandpa when I was, like, 13 or 14. And um, the cashier at the American Apparel was this, like, beautiful Mediterranean woman with, like, hair down to her knees. And um, I remember seeing her, like, on, like, American Apparel ads, and she was just, like, someone working in the shop. And I would just go in there and, like, stare at her while I was, like, browsing clothing and – 
my mom didn't want to go in there with me because she thought it was like pedophilic and demonic and she let me go in there anyways. It's a very formative experience for my sexuality, I think. <laughs> Do you like see her as kind of a celebrity? Because I know that I definitely... I followed a lot of the girls on Tumblr that also worked in the stores allegedly and they were like definitely a sort of celebrity in my mind that I found very compelling. No, yeah, she made me really nervous. Like I didn't want to go and like pay for my clothing because she was just there and I would just have to like go into the dressing room and take a deep breath and like go out there and be like, oh, I, uh, can I just buy <laughs> this like scrunchie really quick, please? Like it was very um, nerve wracking, but it was like a magical experience seeing like a model of that sort in real life. Yeah, the dressing room experience there was always really scary. I just remember feeling like I was never spending the right amount of time in the store. Like if I only bought one thing, I'd be really embarrassed. But if I tried on six different things, I'd be like, wait, I've been in here for like an hour wasting their time. But I was going through my email recently because I was trying to find like when I first started shopping for American Apparel. And I think my first order that I put on online, I was literally 11 years old. So it's crazy to think that oh it's like God. kind of my 10 year anniversary. But similarly to Biz, I also grew up in South Carolina and the nearest American apparel was at least two hours in any direction. But I think when I was around 12, I started going like every year for my birthday, like either to Atlanta or Charlotte or Charleston. And it was this big occasion where I'd do like a giant haul. But my parents were really supportive because I sat them down on separate occasions and explained to them, you know, vertical organization and like why sweatshops were bad and how I didn't want to support fast fashion. (laughs) And that really convinced them because they were like, okay, my daughter's like 12 years old, but it's like weirdly into this slutty ethical clothing so I guess we'll have to support her for like the next few years on that yeah like we have to support our slutty 12 year old girl because she's like anti (laughs) yeah it's actually really funny because when I first you know caught wind of American Apparel as a brand I don't think I really knew what a sweatshop was per se Like, I had ideas, but, like, I couldn't pin down a sweatshop as being something that was, like, so horribly bad. Like, I I knew that it was bad, you know? But, like, I wouldn't explain to my parents how American Apparel, like, wasn't a sweatshop, I guess. (laughs) No, I tried asking Dub Charney. I went on his, like, Instagram Live yesterday, and I tried to, like, get in there. So, because he was just letting random people in. And I tried to get in there and I asked him a question about vertical integration and he was like ignoring me and I just kept asking him. It was kind of embarrassing, but no I really want to get like I really want to speak to him. Like he's such well, an enigma. Like we're definitely gonna get our little paws on him one way or another. Dying he's very accessible. Through. I think yeah. we'd have to send pictures of ourselves and then he would be like, Oh wait, what? Like <laughs> Well, I think, you know, my thesis or my idea so far has been that to offer you as prey because you're <laughs> yeah so that's a good my, idea my ideas for this entire podcast is to pitch this you as a teenager <laughs> that's really good yeah i just think it's really funny to like be like yeah alexi's 15 (laughs) no i think easily the worst tragedy of my life is i dreamt my whole adolescence of working at american apparel like i was so excited i was like i'm gonna move to new york city and work in american apparel and then as soon as i actually became of legal working age they all shut down so 
I think if I told him my story, maybe he would make me be his sex slave or something, like that girl that he locked in his apartment. Oh, God. Um, yeah, yeah, they, they're like hiring right now for Los Angeles Apparel, which is why he keeps just like going on Instagram Live. So I mean, No way. Yeah, he just like put his phone number there and stuff. Like he was just being very open. I feel like he's a very accessible man, sending emails to people and seems like a very nice guy. I think he would hire you. Oh, this is exciting. You're you're graduating soon, so maybe that is your next move to become Dove Charney's uh, live-in assistant. <laughs> I remember whenever I first moved to New York, like after American Apparel closed, I was surfing on Craigslist and I found a listing that was like American Apparel casting. And I was like, wait, what? I kind of thought they were over. But I applied for it and I got this really weird email back that was like, consider yourself lucky. Like we don't reply to a lot of people. I forgot what they said. They were like, if you had to model like one garment for American Apparel, what would you model? And I was like, what? This is so sketchy. They sent it from like a weird email. It sounds like they were trying to just mine your data as a consumer to know like what American Apparel wear is like the best. Yeah. Um, I guess like we should talk about why we think American Apparel happened and how it happens. I think I have like some theories about why it blew up the way it did is um like obviously Dove Charney is this sort of like hipster god or whatever and he really like is emblematic of the attitude of the era of the early mid 2000s during the Bush era where I think that irony was like the way of fighting the rhetoric of like the conservative ruling population in the United States like there was like Stephen Colbert and like John Stewart and stuff and like back then they were like cool they weren't lame like they are today, but they were like actually transgressive. And um, Stephen Colbert, also from South Carolina, I will say, which is also where American Apparel's first factory was. So it seemed very star-crossed. My mom really likes Stephen Colbert because he's like really feverishly Catholic. He's like always talking about it. Um, South Carolina Catholic boys. <laughs> <laughs> like a nice, like scrupulous combination, but um. Yeah, no, I think that, like, um, during that era, whenever American Apparel really started to rise, there was obviously, like, trends of, like, blue jeans and, like, sort of salt-of-the-earth American fashion because of 9-11 rhetoric. And I think that that was working maybe in the favor of, like, the conservatives that were sort of pushing for this nationalism in order to justify the invasion of Iraq and Iran and that shit show of wars. And I think that Dove almost did this, like, parody on the conservative style of that era because he took something that was like at the time being portrayed as something very religious and nationalistic and he turned it on his head and turned it like really sexy and dangerous and transgressive and I think that it really permeated through culture in a way that was like not expected like I was looking at some of the old ads and like I think there's this one big ad on the back of Vice magazine when it was like in print where it was like made in Bangladesh and it was like mm-hmm. this Bangladeshi woman who was like topless with perfect tits she has very perfect tits exactly yeah like this beautiful um big breasted woman on the back (laughs) of vice magazine you know I don't think that anyone could get away with something like that anymore and if and if they did I, I don't think it would be as tasteful I think that he made all of his like weird sexual perversions very classy and tasteful in his advertising for some reason i don't know how he was able to do I, that but. i think he has a true respect for the aesthetics and i don't know form of women's bodies like 
I agree what you said. It's, it was very tasteful because I think her body was like displayed and photographed in a very beautiful, flattering way. Whereas now I feel like since it would be trying to like justify itself in the like social justice sphere, kind of because it is making a comment about a Bangladeshi garment trade, I think it like couldn't it couldn't respect the body anymore, if that makes sense. Like it couldn't treated so beautifully and like artistically definitely true yeah that's the thing about a lot of their advertisements i feel like the posing was so like obviously intended to be flattering that that's why people were like oh this is so objectifying like i think it's because girls know their angles you know they know how to like arch their back and i think it's a little bit like unsettling i think we talked about like the casting couch vibe of all of those photographs and how kind of forced they seem but yeah, I think it's true that today they would be like forcing her to have like rules or something or be sitting in like a really unflattering yes. position. <laughs> yes. It, yeah, they would definitely be like, um, they would like l- shoot it in a way where the lighting like emphasizes her stretch marks. And yeah. like, like, that's like the focal <laughs> point. It's like not her tits, it's like the stretch marks on her tits. It's really when they started to do that that I think they started like going downhill because like I actually really loved the mannequins with the pubic hair. But, like, that's the last I remember seeing American Apparel open during my trips to San Antonio. Like, I never there was saw those. those. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. yeah, it was, like, towards the very end. It was, And it was, like, the Petra Collins, like, a period <laughs> masturbation t-shirt on them. And it was this, like, mannequin with, like, a big pubic hair thing on it. <laughs> like a toupee? Like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, it was, like, this weird tuft of hair. Like, Wait, it wasn't, over. like, drawn on. It was, like, implanted. <laughs> No, it was like yeah, no, it was it was like a wig or something. It was like a wig. It was very weird. And um like that was the last time I ever saw a physical American apparel store open. And yeah, they just started to do things like that that were very you know, and I don't think that it's that they started to do things that were more inclusive because I think that their posing and like the models, you know, their whole thing is they're very naturalistic and it's not contrived. But I think that the whole tone changed around the way that we see people's bodies in public now like you just kind of Mm. are bombarded by obscenity that you're just kind of dead to it at this point and it's kind of I feel like the vibe of naturalism was sort of lost towards the end and he's trying to regain that with Los Angeles apparel but it's just not the same I think even though I love that brand I think it's really good quality someone said something about like the casting couch vibe Um, I really like that idea because I think, yes, I think women really do know how to work their angles. And I think like women especially know how to work their angles in like the bedroom context, which is like, yeah, like arching your back or like knowing how to give like a come hither look to somebody is that's like literally timeless and like cannot be taught, I don't think. And so I think that, yeah, taking that sense of knowing your angles and applying that to like advertising is why it was so beautiful and and so compelling and so like, so erotic. Yeah, I think that combined with a voyeuristic kind of photography, I mean, it was always like, you know, pictures that someone was taking like right before they were about to fuck somebody or, you know, it was always like that DSLR, like flash photo vibe, but One thing that I thought was really interesting about their imagery was that, you know, the catalog photos or like the photos where you were shopping on the website really weren't that different from 
the pictures that you would see like in advertisements, like the ways that they posed were so like weirdly angular. Like they would always be in profile, like with their legs at these really weird angles. Yeah, that's like my favorite thing about them is that they, even to this day in Los Angeles apparel, there's like four or five poses that every model has like ever used. They just like sort of like rotate up with these poses and it's like a pose for the pants and a pose yeah. for the shirt. Like the like- disco pants pose. If I yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's like interesting, I feel, because um, when you talk about, you know, American apparel starting as a kind of parody on a era of American culture, that makes me think about how the poses that they use, even though they are kind of like artistic, they very much remind me of like old school catalog modeling. That's also very much part of the American identity is like, or not the American identity at large, <laughs> but like, like America, like a department stores and how they proliferated was a big part of how the American fashion industry developed. So that's like, oh, definitely, yeah. Wow, I didn't think about that before. That's a great Yeah, point. I think the whole aesthetic definitely comes from print media as well. Because when you look at American Apparel's very, very first ads, like late 90s, they're using like that Helvetica font and really basic black and white because it's printed in newspapers for wholesalers. And I think Dove actually never let go of that and like never developed the design past just text for like a newspaper. So I think it's actually really cute that they never made a more glossy version of their logo. Like it really is just that simple. I literally can't imagine being like a wholesale purchaser and like opening the catalog and like seeing that type of advertisement. It was probably like really actually made you horny. No, it was before they had photos with it. It was just actually like a classified almost that just said like American Apparel wholesale t-shirts, but it's still in the same left justified Helvetica font. One thing that I think is really funny is that when they first started, Dove Charney was still Canadian, (laughs) which is like the most ironic beginning ever. And he was just using cheap American labor and like bringing t-shirts into Canada. Wait, he was selling in Canada? Yeah, I think that's how he started out. Wow. He's like, yeah, he's a really tricky man. Like he really knows how to skirt around these things, I guess. Like he's really good at it, I think. Yeah. And then he found the market in America and he was like, you know, Americans want to hear made in America. But before it was really just, I think he realized that you could make things in America for cheap and not have to transport them for as long. (laughs) You were just selling to Canada. He was trying to avoid subcontracting offshore. So he just subcontracted to like factories in California. Yeah. And South Carolina. (laughs) Oh my God. That's so crazy. That's such a crazy connection. Cause now I think about how, yeah, we're like so ununionized down here. So that makes sense as to why he was manufacturing here as a Canadian. Yeah. I think he's technically Canadian American now, but yeah. Because he comes from like a a very famous family. Like his cousins are like the Softy brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think his uncle is like a famous architect or something. Like he's like a city architect. I don't really know exactly what he does, but I think he got a loan from his dad, which is like $10,000, I think, which honestly is like not as much as I thought it would be for a brand as big as American Apparel. But I do think that like one of the best parts about it, and I think obviously the appeal of it has always been that it's like so ethically made, Mm. you know, no one was paying workers living wages. Still, people don't pay workers living wages, especially garment workers. 
And he's actually gotten in trouble a lot of times for like hiring undocumented people and still paying them like a living wage. And like right when they kicked him out of American Apparel, they made a bunch of changes to the way that the company worked and the workers started to actually unionize because they weren't unionized before. So there was like this protest and from all the workers because they made so many changes about like scheduling and stuff. I don't know, it was like complicated, but interesting and kind of sad that it had to end that way. Did they form a union? Were they able to? I don't, I think that they did, but I'm not sure. I, I didn't look into like the results of all of that. They, cause there was a statement made about how the workers, of course, have the right to unionize, but that mm. seemed more of like a PR thing. And I, I don't even know if they still use American workers for American apparel because they, they're still around, but they have an all female board now, which is um, funny. <laughs> they say that there is sweatshop free, but it's not made in America. I mean, I would just have to look into it. Like I, you know, I, I don't really trust something sold on Amazon, you know, oh, that's so crazy. Like as a general rule, like being ethical, but, and the quality of the clothes just really started going downhill as well. Wait, um, was American Pearl, it was good quality. Cause like I said, the only thing I ever was able to really purchase from them was that one shirt, which like was stretchy and random. So I like never got a really good sense for what their clothes were like long term. Yeah, I still have a pair of jeans from when I was like 14. Yeah. Um, Their jeans were great. Half of my closet is still American Apparel that I bought when I was younger, which is great that I still fit into it. But yeah, it definitely has lasted a long time. That's so funny. Yeah, they were still the same size when you were 11. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, not when I was 11, but like the stuff that I bought when I was, I don't know, like 15, 16. Yeah, I think I'm perfect. still that size. (laughs) Okay, so speaking of, you know, our high school bodies, I remember I had this thrifted navy tennis skirt that i it was kind of you know in the style of american apparel but it was thrifted from thrift store and it was by banana republic but i remember like when i got to college at a certain point it stopped fitting me properly because it was already super super small and i like hated that that happened and i definitely think that when we talk about american apparel and when we talk about how american apparel is coming back right now and how we expect it to come back. It's like, I think the focus, the through line through the decade is the tennis skirt. Definitely. Obviously, like the big return of anime. Not really return. It's just like kind of a boom of anime that we're seeing. And just a lot of like Asian influences and um, obsession with that media, like just really skyrocketed the tennis skirt into like something. And I feel like it's inherently almost like fetishistic. I don't know if that's okay, like if that's like an accurate assessment, but the tennis skirt feels extremely like fetishistic. I don't know. It's just very, very sexy. You know, I, something very uh, simple that came from a sports thing. I don't know. <laughs> the American Apparel one, the cut and fit of it specifically was so sexy because it had kind of like this waistline that had a flat panel over the hips. Do you remember that? So it yeah. like showed the shape of your hips and then flared out. It wasn't like where the pleats come all the way up to the waist seam. So it like had this very like, yeah, very sexy cut and fit to it. I think it was, it's kind of interesting that it's called the tennis skirt. I mean, I know like a pleated skirt is a tennis skirt, but it's like they stripped all the functionality out of it because like any skirt that you would wear for tennis would have to have shorts under it. But this was like, their version was almost designed to just like get upskirted 24-7, like expose yourself. But yeah, I think it definitely is fetishistic, like any kind of reference to like uniform. And I think the American Apparel version of it, I remember they did a lot of styling with like their tube socks with the stripes on them or like knee socks. And I mean, we can get into like Dove Charney's sock fetish and like his tights fetish. But yeah, their styling of it was definitely 
like Americana sportswear inspired and to see it being styled these days and you know like the anime schoolgirl way it's really not that far off but the fetish does come from breaking some kind of rigid like uniform for women and like making it a more sexy version my like running thesis is that the only timeless look is like sexy schoolgirl i don't really know why i think that but I think it's true because I have seen it like manifest in different ways through every decade of like the 20th century. And then I would say it's like, yeah, the dominant garment of fashion minded, like Gen Z women or teenage girls. So like, it's so ubiquitous and like, uh, proliferated so far that I'm like, it, I think it like has to reflect some sort of like, yeah, larger zeitgeist, which I think is like, now it's like the babyfication of Gen Z and like everybody. No, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think the obviously like the popularity of like Japanese porn and like I was telling you, Biz, like how I feel really bad for like Japanese schoolgirls because there's so much porn about them. Like that must be so uncomfortable to just exist in like a uniform. Like, I mean, I my whole theory on like the babyfication of Gen Z is like pretty much that the world is so precarious right now. And like there's been so many changes that have been made to the world since our parents were in it as young people. We were given like very little preparation for the world that we're in right now. And I think that the kids that are babyfying themselves, I think that they're uh, desiring the security of being a child again and not having to worry about being thrust into this like extremely chaotic and like precarious world where nothing is certain and we don't even know what like next week is going to look like. And, and I think it is almost like a psychological need to like return to like your home, which is very sad, but... That's so true. There is this girl who went to my school published something in a magazine about the schoolgirl uniform or like the school uniform and it was so good. But she said something like, you know, there's nothing more sad than a grown woman in like a schoolgirl uniform. (laughs) So this is also kind of like, you know, when I was first getting into American Apparel and wearing like a tennis skirt, I was actually like 14, 15. There was really nothing subversive about it. Like it wasn't ironic. I actually just looked like a high school student. But now I'm like, you know, when is it not appropriate for me to dress that way? And I think a lot of their garments have a similar connotation with youthfulness that is kind of weird. I think what you just brought up about how since you did get into American Apparel at such a young age... Uh, especially this era of American apparel with the tennis skirt. Like, I think that even though, like you said, there there technically was nothing subversive about you wearing it because you, like, literally were school age. But, like, it's, like, the subtle just, like, distinctions, I think. I don't know. It's, like, the the lolitification of girls that are already barely legal makes me feel totally insane because that does feel like a process that has the kind of, like, the very uh, direct lolitification, like, wearing the tennis skirt and, like, doing the blush and stuff. Like, that feels like something that you should be doing as you're trying to, like Sam said, like, negotiate your precarity in the world and trying to find comfort and clothes and styles that you wore when you were a child. Yeah, I think seeing young girls wear it in the way that they do now which is very erotic, is very strange for me, I think. Yeah, because it's almost just become like a sex worker uniform as well. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a great point. Because yeah, I think we are seeing the sex worker uniform enter the mainstream, even through things like, obviously, you know, bringing it back to Petra Collins. She did a shoot recently with Alexa Demi. 
from uh-huh. what's that show? Euphoria. Euphoria. <laughs> Euphoria. Yeah. And she was just wearing a full on sex worker LARP, which was like elf ears, hands tied behind her back and like a long blonde wig. So there's, a, I mean, yeah, I guess we're all like just cosplaying and LARPing. Yeah. Wait, Sam, I remember you were bringing up how American Apparel is tied to this ironic patriotism and like this type of Americana that was seen as kind of subversive at the moment. And I think it's, you know, there was like a very specific type of Lolitification, as you put it, biz, that was very tied to super Americana aesthetics that also had to do with like Lana Del Rey and, you know, the, yeah, kind of like right, the origins yeah. of cherry emoji Twitter that are just like, Oh God. You know, heart-shaped glasses, tennis skirt, eating ice cream or whatever. I think American Apparel was, I don't know, their relationship to Tumblr is really interesting because they posted on Tumblr a lot. But I feel like my exposure to American Apparel was not through like actual advertisements, but reposts of advertisements. I feel like some of them were fan-made edits of just like random pictures with a logo over it. So I'm wondering what you guys think about how the original American Apparel aesthetic was kind of diverted through these different channels of interpretation. I mean, I think it's interesting because like we're all kind of at a very lucky or maybe very unlucky moment where like we started developing our relationship with social media in our teens. Maybe that's actually really unlucky actually, but um, (laughs) compared to like kids these days, their entire formative years are going to be on YouTube, which is a little bit scary, but um, that's like deeply unlucky. That's yeah, yeah. that's yeah. So I don't know who's got it worse. Well, it's yet to be seen, but um, I, I do think that the development of something like Tumblr, especially and Instagram is just very like image based media and your brain that really does something to your brain and like how you process the world I think that maybe we've like I think that we've developed a sort of like relationship with images that is not fully like understood yet and it is like maybe we have like stagnated in our youthfulness not only because of like the precarity of the world and how unprepared the institutions were to like bring us in and like support us in like whatever our life endeavors may be but um like, I think that we've developed genuine addictions to, like, really libidinal, like, images uh, that just yeah like, totally, like... Well, they keep getting worse and worse, too. Like, when I look at the American Apparel ad, it seems, like, highly editorialized compared to, like, a thoughty girl who's wearing an American Apparel-type beat outfit on TikTok now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, I feel like it's kind of the opposite, where it's, like, they really captured something about beauty that's just, like, naturalistic. And I feel like it's almost, like, paradoxical to the ideas of beauty of our time and just the behavior of everybody now, I think. Um, Like, I've yet to find a person that's, like, automatically naturalistic. Like, everyone is extremely contrived. Yeah. Um, Our sexualities are very contrived. Like, they're total reproductions of, like, the images that we've consumed. And there's, like, no personal experience to inform it. Um, Yes. And like, you know, it's it's very, you know, I think American Apparel was like the last hurrah of like a naturalistic sexuality. And there's like no way it can be recreated in our time, especially by people in our generation, because we just don't have an experience of like real world and not digital world sexuality. There's just, you know, a lot of contrivance in everything that we do now. It's very depressing. That's a really good point because I feel like, so one of the things that American Apparel was most controversial for was having porn stars model their clothes and their advertisements, like Sasha Gray. And then there was the girl who's not as famous, but she has like red hair and freckles and her name is like Faye something. But that feels like somehow tied into how everyone's doing like OnlyFans girl kind of LARP now. Like the thing I said about Alexa Demi wearing the like OnlyFans girl costume, but, but it's like the opposite of that. 
Um, because like these girls, you know, they had a professional sexuality and like a professional way of being seductive, but then they were like applying it to traditional, in a sense, fashion modeling. You know, that actually reminds me of that interview you did with Sasha Gray and that like really incredible quote that really stuck with me. You asked her about how people present very sexually these days. And, and she said that one time um, she saw this woman at a party or something dressed very provocatively and acting very provocatively. And she walked up to her and said something really obscene. And the woman was like offended. And she yeah. was like, well, you know, you can't, you're kind of like acting like you are about the life, but you're not or something. And yes, I, I totally agree with that because the woman she was speaking of was wearing some sort of BDSM accessory. So it was probably like a sub collar or something. But since we've gotten to a point where we've like drained all aesthetics of their like original significance, it yeah, it presented a situation that was like very like tedious and awkward, which is like someone telling you that you're like a pervert because you assumed that that this like symbolic piece of clothing that they're wearing had any sort of connection to its like original significance. Oh, definitely. I don't remember who said I think it was Zizek that said this. Um about um, how like everyone feels sort of like the need. I, I don't know if this is exactly what he said, but it's, I feel I do feel that everyone feels the need to act a lot sluttier than they actually are. Whereas in the past, everyone had to act a lot more virginal than they actually were. So it's there's like this great reversal. And the result of that is that your sexuality is like really repressed because everyone feels this huge. I remember being like a kid on Tumblr and like, you know, being obscene and sexual and like, not totally understanding <laughs> what was going on and like not even feeling it. I was just doing it out of social pressure. And that doesn't feel, you know, I think that is like a result of like all of these like obscene and erotic images that we're bombarded with. And then also just like the consumeristic mentality of sexuality these days. It's like it needs to be this like product that you sell instead of something that's done in secret and like, you know, like hushed away. This is like a good segue to talking about one of the values that I feel like was at the core of American Apparel, which is like transparency, both with their imagery, because, you know, they had that whole like candid, refreshingly honest vibe about their photography, but also like the manufacturing process was designed to be very transparent. There was this girl who in 2007, like wrote and published this article about um, sexual harassment at American Apparel. And she went to college with Charleston, which is kind of like of interest to us. But um, I think she coined Dove Charney's mindset as like being post-sex and a lot of his defense in his lawsuits and in his trials was that, you know, like in the fashion industry, there's no tiptoeing around like sexuality. Like that's why he would wear underwear in the office or that's why he would talk about sex so openly. A weird thing to that's actually a really interesting thing to say like post-sex like that's a that's actually a really interesting way to put it that's um, a crazy thing because i feel like 2007 was like or 2006 or whatever it was like like post-sex feels like now i can't imagine using that word at that time <laughs> she might have been a genius honestly yeah he said a post-sex society is one in which discussions and images of sex no longer have a deep meaning about gender and power so oh my God. genius brilliant yeah because <laughs> okay, that's like my whole ethos for the past couple years has been like stampeding around being like I am sex negative or like I'm sex critical or something. And it's mostly just because I, I think that sex needs to be approached differently than how sex positivity movement forces us to approach it. 
So I can't believe, yeah, I mean, it's in, it's very interesting that he was saying that kind of stuff, like, way back then. I don't know. Actually, wait, maybe she was the one saying that. But I think she I, was either like... Either of them, though. Yeah. But the whole reason why he was always getting into hot water was because he kind of saw, like, talking about sex and, like, being sexual as necessary or ironic and not an unwanted display of power. I think he has, like, a kind of a Silicon Valley libertarian mentality, like, given some of his, like, quotes that he's liberated but like insane and schizophrenic and like doesn't make total sense but just wants to like fuck around and like do business or whatever yeah I, th- I think something I came to a conclusion about him when I was like thinking about him so much was like that I think he has like a voracious appetite for literally everything which is like why he was able to create this insane business and I think but he also has like a voracious appetite for women and those often go hand in hand like historically like i guess people like men that were you know interesting leaders or whatever probably were also really horny i'm guessing yeah that's that the poglia quote of like there is no female because <laughs> there's no female jack the ripper yes no you, um, you have to be existentially horny to be any type of artist I that's think. like so beautiful like that's literally so beautiful to be existentially horny um i, I feel like it's very torturous I, yeah it is definitely the crazy thing about hearing him talk is that you know with that podcast with josh peck like he seems to genuinely <laughs> believe that all of his actions were like completely harmless he's like yeah like how could it possibly subordinate anyone like the fact that i'm like walking around naked all the time I feel like I could totally, I mean, I'd definitely be thrown off because I grew up in a very Christian, prudent household and I'm still shocked by like nudity and things. But I think it's a good, it would have been a good welcome dissonance on on my part. That's a good story to tell if I worked there. I I love whenever men walk around. This is like a really good, so I'm thinking about now kind of the downfall of American apparel, which I think very much ties like into the fact that people started to feel a lot of like cognitive dissonance about the things that we've laid out so far, which is like, yeah, they were very like transparent and um, ethical or whatever you want to call it. But uh, on the other side, once we started to learn these things about Dove Charney, that he was always (laughs) naked in the office or whatever, or that he had some sort of connection to uh, or an allegation, allegations of sexual misconduct or whatever, I think people found it really, really difficult to like accept or openly support a brand that did have this cognitive dissonance between its like good and like sustainable ethical side and like its bad perverted side. I mean, yeah, like I think that the downfall of it was sparked by this like huge tonal shift in the way that we see bodies and sexuality. And, you know, I'm sure that he was like pretty uncomfortable to talk to at times he seems like he does some cocaine or something <laughs> he um, does some cocaine <laughs> yeah i respect that <laughs> um he's like a creature of a different time like it's almost like um quaint like hearing him talk in such an obscene way you know it's like there's like no way that we could ever find something like that today which is part of the appeal of its return i think um mm-hmm. because like things are so stale culturally and artistically and politically just everything also, um, like, you can't blanch this, the workplace of sexual energy. It's, like, impossible. And I think, yeah, like, when you think talk about the return, I'm, like, people, um, I think on some level, are aware that that wasn't always 
the worst thing to have. Yeah, I I think Biz, whenever you talked about how, you know, there are two versions of like having a creepy boss, there's like the Dove Charney type, which is like actually trying to have sex with you. And then I don't know, you'd probably be better at explaining it. I explain that actually. Yeah. It's like, so it's like, there's two versions of like the creepy horny boss, which is like the old version was like, he's trying to fuck you or, you know, he's very obviously interested in you or attracted to you. And like the new version is just like him sending you text messages at like 10 PM that are, you can't clock them as any sort of sexual advance, but tonally and in the emojis used, <laughs> it's, it is what it is. Yeah, just in the act of trying to take up your time, like <laughs> it's, a, it's a fuck boy boss yeah. versus like pervert boss. The funny thing about Dove Charney, like the thing that you said, was kind of makes him quaint. Is that there are so many quotes where he genuinely believes that he's like the victim because of how horny he is. Like there's that quote where he's like, "It's the same as like shaming a like transvestite, which isn't like a good term, or like a homosexual." Like he's like, "It's inhumane to." I don't know. Shame me for sexuality. It's so funny. I'm really interested in that idea, though, because I think when we talk about this existential horniness being a curse, I'm like, I do think there's something to that, and that like he was afflicted. He had an affliction, but like obviously his understanding of it was very like myopic, I guess, because he could really not see how it it could affect someone who had different orientations. I think what became the ultimate ethical conflict was, you know, questioning because it's like undeniable that he did have consensual sex with his employees, but consent is really tricky when you're factoring in that he's the CEO and a lot of the time they were just random shop girls and they would get promoted <laughs> from doing it. So I think yeah, they were like shop girls with like small waists, so they got promoted. Like that's yeah. how they made it into corporate, like by having like a certain size like rib cage. Yeah, that's like a yeah, that's like a very quaint way of promotion which honestly like yeah no I mean I, I wonder like I feel like now the, those like unofficial rules of like promotion kind of like oh if you're hot and you sleep with me you can get promoted they still exist but almost in a more like I, I don't know I think that the way it is today is like more messed up where they do think like you know they pick like identity like statistic um promotions and stuff instead of based on like which to me just feels very like almost like just tokenizing and very um uncomfortable even though I do think it like matters to create a equitable workplace but um again just like the i like the ideology behind it just feels very cold maybe i don't know if that's if that's that y'all feel it <laughs> yeah i think as you said like it's weird to not acknowledge sexuality in the workplace working is often because it's related to power it's related to sex but i think another interesting thing is like beauty um, I was just reading The Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf, which was published in like 1990, but she goes over this whole history of court cases in the United States where women were like fired for not being beautiful enough or fired for not like meeting like a standard of beauty. Yeah, their bosses told them like, oh, you have to wear something more slutty and they were like fired for not doing it. But yeah, the United States has laws in place that say that like being beautiful is a qualification that you can be hired for or fired for. I think what people had an issue with with Dove Charney is that like he was almost like promoting sexuality in the workplace. Like he would hang up posters that were from actual like porn magazines like straight up yeah i remember he gave an interview somewhere where he was kind of explaining his hiring process and he said that he would sort of like 
give like a pitch to the future employees, like, hey, this is like a very sexual workplace. Um, and like you either get with the program or you get out type thing. Yeah. Um, and I do think that might also be why there was such a almost like a spiritual horniness to like everything American Apparel did. Like it was so horny. <laughs> like, <laughs> and you know what it, what it made me think about um, what Biz's two boss type thing made me think about is that like, you know, in the past people were like existentially horny and now it's just like they're lonely. You know, it's like you're not even horny anymore. You just like are so lonely, <laughs> like, you know, so you're like texting someone at 10 p.m. And you feel guilt for like feeling anything like sexual towards your coworkers too yeah it's desolate desolate time I'm, I'm painting a very desolate picture i do think that um we're living in a good time oh, maybe wait, i have to say about this that i think like um when you talk about the horny charge of the you know working environment at american apparel is i came to a conclusion recently on my own the past couple months that horniness like can be a sort of adderall and if you are really horny, it makes you, I don't know, you 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 work Early, differently. Yeah. And I think a, probably a lot of people have like weirdly had that experience during like work from home because like you're like able to, I don't know, like do like Snapchat or something. I don't know. get <laughs> <laughs> horny, but like, you know what I mean though? Like, yeah, it's interesting to think about that being a, like the horny atmosphere which probably was oppressive in some ways, not like literally, but just like spiritually oppressive being also like the secret ingredient in how holistically horny and pervy the entire brand was. Yeah. I don't like, I think that um, anything, cause I really do think that Dove Charney is primarily an artist. You know, he has the mentality and he shot most of those like initial iconic ads himself with like girlfriends of his in his like bedroom. So like, you know, I think that he really is just almost like a pornographer of a, of a type that is like very artistic, like seventies golden age type guy. Um, but, Oh, I don't think that there's a way that you can be an artist without having some sort of like ethical ambiguity, you know, like, I don't think that you can create good art without it being somehow transgressive, even if the transgression is like not that edgy as Dove Charney. Yeah, I agree. I, have recently become an advocate for like the male gaze in my own way (laughs) and like I think that American Apparel's advertising when you talk about Dove being an artist like you could just look at it and be like yeah like this is the male gaze like a dude shot this and that's like why it's so good so I think that as an artist he was a an excellent practitioner like of the of the male gaze and like it reminds me almost of like pre-Raphaelite art where it's all like really addictive to look at because yeah. it was rendered through that hand. Yeah, definitely. That's so true. Thank you. <laughs> the true bestie. <laughs> so true bestie. I think one thing we should talk about is kind of how American Apparel's fall informed the coming decade of kind of sustainable and ethical clothing, especially how it's marketed. Because I've been seeing a ton of like reformation hate online that is not just about their failings to be like a company that treats their like black and brown employees right but also about how like sexless and algorithmic their clothing and marketing is Um, i don't actually know this is kind of bad i don't know really what reformation is i've seen people post about it but i don't know what it is well you're you're here to the you're talking to the right girl because i you know actually my after I got that American Apparel built-in choker top, I bought 
stuff from the Reformation sale. And that was another like big thing for me because that was when that brand was starting to like trend and become kind of like at the time like uh, something it girls actually wore. It wasn't just like this kind of girl boss. It was like girls that were like cool and attractive. But uh, Reformation Sam is like lots of cotton and linen printed dresses that kind of have a slight peasanty vibe. But the thing that they're known for, I think, in my opinion, was that they made dresses that were very flattering to, like, a woman's body. Uh, So they would have cuts that, like, looked actually, like, made you look hot, basically. Yeah, it was definitely, like, if you have a good waist-to-hip ratio, all their stuff looked really good. I only found out about Reformation because... My senior year of high school, I was shopping for prom dresses and I was like, oh, I want something like cool. And at the time, a lot of their inventory was bridesmaid (laughs) kind of Mm -hmm. dresses, little flowy numbers that were super overpriced. But they're also like sustainably made, I guess. And they're really normy, but in a way that's like not like in the American apparel way. Like it actually is just like Emrata kind of vibes. It's like women that are invested in looking beautiful. That's like who usually wears Reformation famously. Like Instagram picnic, but like not totally cottagecore. Yeah, I like looked up photos. um, And at first only photos of like Martin Luther came up. Then I Googled the clothing brand and it looks like something that like, you know, those like really skinny women that like are like nine months pregnant and they just have like the tiniest little baby bump and it looks so beautiful. Yeah, it's exactly like, that. I'm so okay. happy I didn't buy my prom dress from there. Really? It would have aged me like 20 years. I actually am feeling like a Reformation apologist right now because I don't know if you guys remember this. Alexi, maybe you remember this, Sam, I, but maybe you just remember this like this style, but reformation actually used to have they kind of came into like the i don't know like the cultural ethos somehow because they produced this bodysuit that had like this deep v in the front that laced up across the boobs oh my god remember that yeah i I mean they probably stole it but like that was they popularized it and i yeah i bought one my senior year of college so i had my underage uh cleavage out for some reason and um yeah so it's interesting to see how far they have fallen because that obviously was like their their one of their starting points and then now sam you look them up and you're like it reminds me of like what skinny women wear when they're pregnant um (laughs) something about it just screams girl that has a boyfriend you know like it's exactly yeah girlfriend clothes i think someone made a tweet about that i actually just got a reformation dress from for my birthday for my stepmom but like i don't know maybe i'll wear it sometime but it's one of those like midi dresses you know it's basically like a tank dress it's very very flattering but i think you should wear it unless you really hate your stepmom then you should wear it (laughs) no i stand her i appreciate the effort i think what what makes them different for american apparel though is like american apparel clothes like a lot of it was actually really basic, but Reformation tried really hard to have like one thing about each item of clothing yes. that made it slightly different. Yeah, like a puff sleeve or like the lace up or some kind of ruffle. Or like and a then, cutout. Yeah. And they also do that weird thing that a lot of fashion companies do where like each thing is named after a woman's name. You know, they're like oh. the Alina dress <laughs> or something or like. Yeah, it's always like the Magdalena dress, which is yeah. like. It's always- <laughs> those girls names and i'm like where's like the biz alexis and (laughs) sam dress actually i was talking to someone earlier and they were like you guys all have dyke names and i was like oh my god 
Yeah, um, but we all have very high estrogen, I think. This yeah. is a high estrogen podcast and no one can say otherwise. I guess, like, one thing that I think is, you know, important when we talk about the American Apparel comeback is, like, it is very much an alternative to how girl bossy, sustainable fashion has become when we think about Reformation and then also more updated, current, whatever. Uh, parade underwear. Parade, yes! <laughs> Yes. I mean, it's just like the most sexless thing you've ever seen in your life. And I don't think that American Apparel was necessarily trying to offer like social values. It was more like consumer values. You know what I mean? Yeah. Versus now like Parade and Everlane and stuff. It's very much about how you wear you wear this and you then you conduct yourself a certain way, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's a, the classic like um, Ad 101 first thing you really learn is like it's like the aspirational yes. lifestyle creating aspect of advertising like it needs to be something that you want to be in your life yeah. or something I don't that's what made it so um, effective for me at a young age because I don't know I just like wanted to be an American apparel store girl they just seemed like they weren't as try hard as like the people you'd see on tumblr but they still had like a pretty cool sense of style and they also just were really aloof wait yeah talking about that I think like the pure genius of the american apparel aspiration was that like there's this huge intersection between girls that were tumblr famous and girls who were also american apparel models so yeah. there's, this, there's this one named kaylin russo who i was super obsessed with and then there's one named megan fay and then there's uh barbara ferreira that's how she got her start uh, yeah. in modeling and that like was very like aspirational to me because they had this very glamorous side of their lives, but then they would also post, they would constantly get anonymous questions about their love life and like, do you have an eating disorder and shit like that? And they would be like, yes, I do or something. <laughs> And they so like it sent it to so themselves. Crazy. Yeah, no, no, because people were <laughs> obsessed with them though. So I was like sending myself anon messages on Tumblr, <laughs> emulated what they were actually getting. So it was amazing. Um, one thing I want to bring up because like, you had made a post like a couple months ago about amber lamps, and that really like blew amber my mind. Lamps, yeah, that totally. Wait, like, what I, is that? that? Was supposed- amber lamps. I did not know what it was at the time of happening, but basically, like I found her somehow. She's like this OG meme from the 2000s, where there was this because okay, so it used to be this genre on YouTube where people would fight and then someone would record it and then it would go viral. And it was always like very like yeah, either like bum racial, fights, yeah. yeah, like bum fights or it was like very like. Wait, I'm looking at it and she's wearing like this really. Yeah, she's beautiful. Yeah. She's like she's the aspirational American. But she she was one of the first enigmatic meme girls, I guess. Um, I think I found her Facebook. <laughs> Um, her name's not Amber Lamps, but she was just like this old YouTube 1.0 video. Yeah, it was, it's like a really violent video of this guy. This guy had like an old YouTube channel and he would just go in public places and like fight people. And he would like oftentimes say like racist things to people mm-hmm. and like try to get them upset. And like he, this video is just him on like a bus and he like punches this guy in the nose and it's like really bloody, but there's this girl on there and she's wearing this like purple bodysuit and like yellow tights or something like <laughs> it's like a teal really tight t-shirt and purple leggings this is like yeah yeah we should talk about this style version <laughs> i feel like what amber lamps really represents is kind of the like uh ways of seeing idea of wanting to like every every girl wants to be amber lamps because you want to be found beautiful like when you're sitting on the bus and <laughs> so true you're so um, right, yeah. 
Yeah, she is definitely a libidinal icon, even though I think most <laughs> people who are, are under the age of like 27 have no idea who she is. And she's so stoic. This fight's happening and she's just staring like, what is my life? Her styling is reminding me, you know, there's like, I think OG American Apparel is like the Americana blue jeans, white shirt styling, but... This version is, I think you called it millennial core biz, and I've been trying to put a name to it. Oh, yeah. You know, that the like spring breakers kind of era, like Project X hangover. Mm-hmm. There was yeah. this like time in the late 2000s, like early 2010s, where American culture just seemed very debased, like very substance abuse, yeah, hedonistic party culture, like neon leggings. I don't know. American Apparel's snapback. Yeah, their venture into that style is very interesting to me. No, yeah, that was like the original American Apparel. Like, that's what I remember is like Mm. the Kanye glasses. Yes. Hipster runoff reading people. Like, I, that's like very, that was very like online at a young age. Yeah. That was like, I caught like the very tail end of that. And it was so aspirational to me. And now it's just embarrassing. Wait, guys, that era, yeah, that era of American apparel, kind of like the Project X, hedonism, predated Sunflower American apparel. Yeah, for sure. Ew, Sunflower American apparel is like so bad. So bad. I don't know, Sam, you had a really astute connection to i don't know the whole bush era thing and americana aesthetics but i'm trying to figure out like what exactly was going on in culture that made this vibe so prevalent and i'm wondering if it's like maybe post financial collapse in 2008 like people just started not caring i mean yeah yeah like i mean i think it's also just like one thing that made me really upset throughout these past couple years is like people don't remember how insane the early 2000s were like geopolitically and like economically like no one remembers the first round of stimulus checks in like 2008 and like but it was like really chaotic and like um right now I think that it doesn't resemble as much because people are more exhausted this round of like crashes for sure occurrences and there's no room for hedonism because it's like no one's gonna throw a hangover style party okay first of all they should second of all (laughs) All of your bad behavior now is like going to be recorded and used against you. So, yeah, like, that's very true. Like, if someone threw like a Project X style party, people would react by being like, "You drugged like minors or something." Like, <laughs> yeah, or you were like burning an American flag. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. I think also the style of like flash photography, DSLR, mm. like completely no depth of field. Like that is a party style of photography because it's you know super fast shutter yeah, speed, yeah. like candid and i think american apparel was getting stuff from that but i mean it was just like in a solo way like it was never like a crowded group of girls with like bikinis or something burst of flash for like the terry richardson style that they employed reminds me of like cum and that sounds like i'm trying to be like edgy but like there's something about that cast of light it's so encompassing it just reminds me of like yeah of calm on like somebody's face because like it's such an explicit rendering in my opinion yeah and it's very violent to have like flash on you it's so violent in an intimate or not intimate or like vulnerable moment like you know when someone takes a video on flash when you're at a party you're like suddenly like now i'm concerned about how i look yeah and also that's a specific genre of porn which is like snapchat style porn with the flashes on it has this very like yeah it has it's very cummy the whole the shebang i guess um no definitely yeah 
I don't know. I'm interested in talking a little bit more about like how there was kind of a feedback loop between American Apparel seeing how their clothes were being interpreted on social media and that kind of cyber goth, soft grunge way, and then just becoming yeah, way more alt. <laughs> was it American Apparel was normcore? Was it not? Like, yeah, it started out the... normcore, but then it became kind of. I think that picture, you know, like the meme of the kids standing against the fence, that Ooh. was almost like yeah. the breaking point of when they started being alt. No one was wearing like the neon American flag leggings anymore. People started listening to like the Smiths because of Tumblr. And do you think that's just because there was a merger between the soft grunge community and then I guess because American (laughs) Apparel made clothes that had dark colors? Because when I look at them, it's really those outfits that those children are wearing. There's nothing about really the clothes themselves that are like all soft grunge. It's really in the The stylings. It's like. Yeah. yeah, it's like the lipstick that's black or like the tattoo choker or the Doc Martens. So it's, yeah, you're right. This is very much a manufacturer of the people and not of the brand. Yeah. Oh, def- definitely. Yeah. No, I think that's like what the point was for American Apparel is like um, the versatility of it. Like it was basics for a reason. Like you could style it in so many different ways and people sort of like improvised with it so much that it started all these different like self-styled fashion movements um and like i don't know if you guys remember like american Apparel used to be like I, they had a t-shirt that was like teens do it better yeah like they they used to be really like before it really blew up they were like extremely controversial they also had like a best butt photo competition um which like oh my god that's so great valid yeah um and the girl who won wasn't even from America. She was like from Brazil. I'm like, are you kidding? That's like, that's like totally cheating. Like, that's outsourcing. <laughs> yeah, he's outsourcing once labor. again. Wait, so Sam always speaks about this, which is that Americans literally hate like incoherence, especially like liberal Americans. Mm-hmm. And I think just something that relates to the controversy in general is like, since Americans do hate the blurred line between fact and fiction so much, which is like why like Dove and Vincent Gallo are so controversial, like, I think people started to have this like, really hard time. And we're really affected by the like sexual nature of the ads because it's like it could be staged to look like a moment of genuine like sexual intimacy or it could be real, um, which is also kind of what was happening with like the brown bunny controversy with, you know, Chloe Seveny actually giving Vincent Gallo a blowjob in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like Americans like cannot hang with that yeah. blurring of fact and fiction. As a culture, I think that we are very um, unimaginative. And I, I think that's a result of our consumerism. And also just like we were like the media pioneers of the world, like with Hollywood and like the uh, fantasy pioneers. And we just sort of automated the creation of fantasy with like the algorithm and with social media. And it's, you know, I, I love um, Marshall McLuhan because and I'm always talking about him and, and sort of like the turn to like digital media and the loss of literacy. And I think that literacy has a lot to do with nuance and um, the ability to like be comfortable with ambiguity and incoherence. And, you know, Americans haven't been able to produce anything artistic for a very long time now because we were, you know, the Silicon Valley pioneers. We really synthesized that within our own culture. We were the Hollywood pioneers. That was very proliferated. And um, and I think that's actually a really good point. Like, there was a very big blurring of fact and fiction with American apparel. Because a lot of it is like the mythology of it. it it's like a myth 
brand of like, is Dove Charney fucking the models? Is he not? Like, um, is this taken in his bedroom? Is this taken in a studio? Like, um, that was part of the appeal and part of why it's like, you know, you don't know if you're witnessing a private moment whenever you're like walking down the street and you see like a, an American Apparel advertisement, you know, and it kind of feels like you are, even if it's not. And that's the beauty of it. They were able to create a fantasy that was like totally a bedroom fantasy. It was like a wet dream and that was it. There was no aspirational lifestyle changes or, um, there was no lifestyle brand to American Apparel. It was literally just like a bedroom brand to be worn in public. Yeah. When I think about looking back on American Apparel, I'm like, it's like a fever dream of a wet dream. Like, yeah. That's very much, I think, when you talk about it having a much looser lifestyle because it was more a collection of like feelings and urges or something. That's what comes to mind. Definitely. Yeah. Animalistic. Yeah, for sure. So should we like, I don't know, if what else should we talk about? I, I have one thing I think we should, it'd be fun to end on, which is like our favorite era of American apparel, which was like, for me, it's always going to be like, Joanna Kuczta, like Polish <laughs> princess, choke me daddy. Okay, so Joanna Kuczta is one of my biggest icons in so many ways. She really represents a type of sexuality, I think, that is distinctly Eastern European and that American women could really use, which is like understanding sex and sexuality, not as like a means of the the contemporary feminist sense of empowerment, but like just a means of reaching sources of power, which means like money and access to a certain lifestyle. And so I think that she kind of like was very much cutting us to the chase in a lot of ways through her own self-objectification, um, which was like wearing the American apparel tennis skirt and then like the light pink Barbie t-shirt with like, that said like, what did it say? Like these tits are art or something. <laughs> and her very like childlike body and stuff. And so for me, that type of self-objectification, which is not feminist really in the sense that feminism exists now, is inspiring and is a tale as old as time. And I think we should return back to that when we think about, you know, being slutty on Maine or whatever. Yeah. I just Googled her right now because I didn't know who she was. And she has the same phone case as my little sister. Aww. Wait, currently? <laughs> Yeah, yep. she's very abject and beautiful. Like, that's very... that's why she was able to maintain her almost like her following was because she still kind of like she evolved as the, the styles did, but there's still that like baby girl princess thing that she mm -hmm. never let go of. Is she the girl with the gun? That like gun photo? There's like a yeah. It's her boyfriend was always wearing her and stuff. She had like a boyfriend who got canceled for being a Nazi, but he was like very pale with like hand veins and stuff. Yeah, I remember the photo because she looks familiar in, in a photo of her with like a gun to her head or something. Yeah, it she was, was very sexy. <laughs> she was always in an American Apparel dressing room. You know, she was famous for those like shots that were like her boyfriend would take them. But I don't know, there's something so intimate about the dressing room selfie. It's like, you know, did she buy it? Yeah. She was just like literally like the horseman of like the choke me daddy movement. And for that, <laughs> you know, you really have to respect someone being a an early like onset <laughs> person like that i'm sure it was not actually easy always to be like that in real yeah. life as well because you literally do look like very abject and slutty most of the time yeah she has i mean she 
Does she have lip injections? Where is she from? This she's is like Polish. a very beautiful woman. Yeah, she's from Poland now. She lives in London. Wait, I think I kind of fucked up my point a bit, but my point (laughs) is that, so she had this, like, she was very much like choke me daddy submissive Mm -hmm. uh, and she signaled that through her clothes. My point is that I don't think being a submissive woman is inherently empowering or liberating. And I think that's a really popular idea. And I think it's really stupid. Um, And I think that what she was doing, which was like the old school version, which is kind of, you know, the classic grift, which is like uh, having a certain type of sexual relationship with a man. And then that is a means to um, claiming power, like either through followers, money or security that, yeah, she embodies that for me. And I respect that. Yeah. They were definitely content farming each other like 24 seven. Yeah, they were, they were, but it was before people kind of understood that content farming existed. Do you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. there we were like, oh, they're just actually like this. Yeah. This woman gives me, she seems like she's straight out of the movie I Am Curious Yellow, which is this, like Swedish movie. Yeah, no, she, it's like a very like weird, controversial pedophilic movie almost. But yeah, this is like a very, she has like an energy of like a 60s thing. Mm-hmm. I guess it can be your turn, Sam. A favorite American apparel era or something, or definitive look? That's a really tough one, because I really feel like my relationship with it was very, like, personal, and that, like, I had, like, a a once-a-year trip to San Antonio to go see. So I think it really would be, like, I really want to find that model, because it was, like, a a very intimate experience seeing her. So that, that era would probably be my favorite, personally. But... You know, I think it like I'm always a fan of just like the simple white t-shirt and the high-waisted like light wash jeans. That to me is like one of my favorite fashion looks of all time. I will always wear that. Um even when I'm 97, like I love that so much. It's definitely my favorite thing. Yeah. <laughs> love that. Yeah, I guess for me I had a similar relationship where it was like really a special occasion to go to the retail store. Like a really specific moment, I think just like in terms of their clothing was the two-piece grid set that was like that windowpane grid. It's definitely like my favorite garment that I ever bought from them. And it was the perfect mix between soft grunge signaling that you were like kind of in on this style. And like, it wasn't so bizarre that you were wearing like a t-shirt with an alien on it or something. Um, Wait, did that like garment make you feel smart? Because I feel like it had like a smart vibe to it because it had like bright angles on it. It was wearing grid paper. (laughs) It was really cute. And it also was just like such a full outfit. Like that was Doc Martens, like it was untouchable. But also I think it's worth mentioning, like I don't know if you guys had an experience of when American Apparel like formally closed, they had the most like insane dying gasp like sale and like weird yes. production. Okay. Yeah, they had um Supreme shirts from American Apparel at Ross at this point. <laughs> That's yeah, crazy. I remember, yeah. Yeah, I was looking through my email history and I saw like my last order from them and it was, I was really just going insane because everything was like $10. I bought these really like ugly vinyl skirts in like three colors that I never wore, like a bunch of weird plaid stuff, all of their very weird fabrics glitter velvet crop top turtleneck it's like they started combining these attributes in like a very weird way so i kind of liked that insanity in a way it was impossible to wear but if you saw someone wearing it you you knew it was american apparel which i think kind of like defeated their original like norm core goals in a way i remember walking it was like the same year but at the end of my freshman year of college walking to the American Apparel store, kind of, I think it was in Soho, 
And it was at the same time when it was really just collapsing in on itself. The the brick and mortar stores were anyways. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just remember there was like a a wreckage of like mannequin parts (laughs) everywhere. And like, (laughs) and I like, I was trying on, yeah, similar to what you said, these very strange materials. It was like the shiny reflective plastic like dress. Yeah. Oh, I bought Um, this dress that was silver lame, like a maxi dress. I tried that dress on. That It was probably the same one that I bought. (laughs) It, It literally was the same one. I remember being like, um i guess i'm like i wasn't it was so sexy in a way that i couldn't wear it when i was like that age because i felt like i was such a you know what i mean like you're just not i like can relate i was wearing american apparel thought wear since i was like 13 (laughs) i love that though i think my my late introduction to it meant that i had a higher barrier of Mm -hmm. like what i thought was too (laughs) thoughty (laughs) i guess my opinion on the resurgence of American apparel is that I think if you belong to the time period when it was actually initially popular, someone like Joanna Kutschta, like you really look good in it still somehow because I think that essential aura is still intact. But I'll be honest, when I see like 16 year old girls kind of LARPing 2014, that's like starting to happen and it's going to, I think, millennial core is going to. Mm-hmm. really be something i think they look ugly i just don't like it i don't think i i guess it's kind of boomery but um i don't i think because gen z is such a or especially young gen z they're so overly like they never shut the fuck up about like their every feeling and thought i think online and i think for me the american apparel look is especially in the soft grunge iteration is very much associated with like secret pinings online via tumblr yeah what i was gonna say about that is that you know i see a lot of these kids on tiktok being like oh like i looked up to these teenagers who dress like this in 2014 but like i couldn't dress that way because i was a child and now i want to i don't know get that sense of like wish fulfillment from something that you couldn't do when you were a certain age i just find that such Mm. an unproductive mentality i really don't respect that i guess if you want to like cosplay for like a day but if you want to make that your whole personal style is based on a longing that you had when you were like a child on the internet it's very bizarre um i think i also like the obviously again again, like the staleness of culture Mm. um but culture has felt stale for a while now but i think especially now it feels stale you know you have a huge resurgence to nostalgia and we have such a vast complex treasure trove of 2014 culture (laughs) available to us (laughs) that it's like never ended Like, I feel like it never stopped, you know, it was like, it it just sort of like maybe teetered down a bit and then went back up and then teetered. Like, it just keeps, it's the same thing coming in waves type thing. Like, yeah, this guy, Toby Shoren has an essay about that. I don't know. He's talking about postmodernism and how the fashion industry is always trying to convince you that like things go out of style and like back into style in this very definitive way. But really like people get into trends so late and get into trends so early that, Mm -hmm. you know, everything is fashionable at some Mm -hmm. point in time to someone, you know, that's why the seventies are always coming back. The eighties are always coming back. Everything is coming back because, you know, like someone somewhere is into it. Yeah, I always think about how there's like a latency period for trends. Like there's going to be a point when something is considered in the mainstream unfashionable, but that latency period is like dormancy was probably a better word is like really shortening. And that's why we're seeing 2014 become an aesthetic moment again. One thing I think is interesting is my prediction is like perverts being really popular again, pervert, like dressing like a pervert, acting like a pervert. 
And I'm like, that's another side of the American apparel trend that I'm interested to see how that's going to play out. I, I'm really curious, honestly. I would love for perverts to come back in style. That would be so cool. I love those glasses. I love the, you know, this is stupid, but I love the Terry Richardson glasses. Like, I think they look really hot, even on someone that looks like a Terry Richardson. <laughs> like, I think if you have perverted proclivities, the best thing you can do is accentuate them. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you become priest-like, like Catholic priest-like, I mean. like. <laughs> no, it's it's true. If you bury no, them is. so deeply... Yeah. it's so much more horrifying but i also (laughs) hate male photographers like i really (laughs) think they're all really annoying there's so many guys still riding on terry richardson's coattails and just being like oh wait yeah i went on an instagram story rant about this last year how i was like terry richardson when he got canceled in the way that he did he basically left this massive hole where male photographers were able to kind of start working in his signature style but no one was like gonna say anything about it because no one wanted to be like you're ripping off terry richardson because he kind of became like his name became kind of like blacklisted you know what i mean like there's Versus like someone, Petra Collins, like when you see a Petra Collins-esque photo, that immediately, her name comes to mind. And I think that because there was a disconnect, a lot of like male photographers were very much able to build a career currently off of his style. Yeah. They don't even build careers. I know so many like, (laughs) like photographers. I hope no one that I know listens to this, but like I know so many male photographers in my hometown that use it to like, they have like their own Instagram pages with like 200 followers and they just use it to do like lingerie shots. And I'm like, why do people fall for this? Like, why are you doing this? Yeah, the version of it in South Carolina is very much a male photographer. And then he's like, oh, like, can I shoot with you? Like, let's go on a hike. And then like, he takes random pictures of you in front of a tree they're just so corny. And you're like wearing a full face of makeup for some reason. Yeah, exactly. Like it's like one step busted. above like yearbook or like senior portraits. <laughs> but I don't know. It's one step below, honestly. <laughs> yeah, um, at least those are like really flattering. But I was going to say concerning like the future of American apparel, one thing that I've noticed about Los Angeles apparel on Instagram, they do still retain a lot of the same imagery. Like one of the classic American apparel signatures to me is the style of modeling where they're just wearing the garment and nothing else, the hoodie and like no pants or like the pants and topless, which mm. they're still doing. But I think they're trying to get in on loungewear vibes and what I consider to be the influencer uniform, which is a matching set of sweatpants and like a hoodie. <laughs> That's what I'm wearing right now. So I guess I'm an influencer. Yeah, I know. The influencer yeah. uniform is like that, but really long acrylics and like hair extensions falling out. And being beautiful. Beautiful. That's like, of course, necessary. I, I actually, I keep getting fed Los Angeles Apparel like YouTube ads, and they have this very weird. It's almost like Nike esque. It's like very fast paced and intense, and like rhythmic music and like staccato imagery, like flashing on the scene. And I'm like, why did you decide that you wanted to do this? I guess that's creepy. In my opinion, if they, if a Los Angeles Apparel wants to ride on the american apparel resurgence um they need to not be doing loungewear i think i think it's also the covid trend of like i've never worn so much loungewear as i do now which is the worst thing in my entire life because i think one of the one of my favorite and most mentally healthy things that i can do for myself is just like getting dressed in the morning Mm -hmm. but it's almost like los angeles apparel is cursed to do the loungewear 
at least temporarily, because they are just basics. Yeah, I think that's a defining difference between Los Angeles apparel and like old American apparel. I remember the old American apparel Instagram was full of people who were kind of turning looks with the the limited basics that they were given. But looking at the Los Angeles apparel Instagram, it's like so much of it is leotards. It's insane. And kind of just like these ready-made outfits, which are, you know, sweatpants and sweatshirt or a full bodysuit, which like, I don't understand who buys those. Like, I don't know why they make those like full leg bodysuits that or like made out of velvet or something. I've never seen anyone wear that. That's interesting. It's very symptomatic of like the Kardashian kind of skims complex. And totally, I, yeah. I think when we talk about the leisure wear a Los Angeles apparel thing, like that's definitely an intersection, which I think. Oh my ugh. God. They have this like oversized Sherpa wrap coat, which is basically like a bathrobe. And it's so skims-esque, like this neutral beige loungewear vibe. They should collaborate, honestly. Yeah, they should. Um, I think um, Dove like kind of outsources his. I don't know. I, I would like love to ask him about this. So um, when God lets me talk to him, I, I will talk to him literally like, um, soon. Like, <laughs> I know it's yeah. gonna happen. I'm just like saying when, not not if. If he's but, going um, <laughs> live on Instagram that often, I mean, he seems like flattery is the way to his heart. If you're just like you're so misunderstood, I understand what you were trying to do. He would just be like, oh, finally someone, you know? Yeah. No, he he was like very. Um, he was just talking to. There was like people trolling him on live, which is why he didn't let me talk to him. But um, but he's very much like wants to talk to people, and he kept asking people's like literal physical home addresses, and he was like, it's fine, just say it on. Instagram. Oh my god, I, he's so old. I'm he's such a weird. No, dude, like you can't. This man, I don't know. He he really doesn't give a fuck. Like he was giving his phone number out. He was telling people exactly where he lived. He's giving like all of his different email addresses out. Yeah. Um, I think the issue with him is that he expects that same disregard for privacy from everyone. And that's what made everyone so uncomfortable. But one thing that I like him mm -hmm. is that he really like isn't a troll. Like when I first started looking at all of your research, I was like, oh, this guy is just like saying such dumb shit. But like he actually means it, makes it better. <laughs> yeah. Like he, he really is like a schizophrenic, like hyperactive person where he has no idea what is going on in the world around him. Like yeah. he is just like hyper focused on one thing. He's a hustler for sure. Um, exactly. Yeah. Like he, you know, I think he's an artist plagued by horniness and then also just like a businessman plagued by like horniness. <laughs> horniness and like stimulants you know? yeah like, and his family probably um, he probably had a lot of like pressure for success from his well-connected family I, I guess definitely yeah but and when we talk about like the broader proliferation of like american apparel i think some dude needs to like come into the fucking ethical clothing sphere and like do what he did because it's very much run by like s mostly very like frigid women mm -hmm. right now yeah. and so i think that could probably make sustainable and ethical clothing less of a weird barnacle of identity politics if like a weird man came in again no i that's the thing i think i don't remember who said like um male photographers and like i think when we were talking about that like i think that there's like so many that are very horny and embarrassing but truly it's like a great and prolific fashion photographer i feel like has to have some sort of like masculine sexual mentality where like you focus in on these like um and alexi you had mentioned before about like those points of interest or i don't remember what it was called but like sort of like the collarbone and like oh yeah um, the erogenous zones theory yeah yeah and like um I feel like someone who is uncontrollably attracted to the female body, which I feel like is a lot of gay men, is going to be the best fashion photographer because they're going to put women in their most goddess-like positions, which is 
sort of the unexpected. You know, it's not like the parts that you can get any surgery on to enhance. It's like a lot of it, it's very, it changes from person to person and extremely almost like a negligible to most people, I think. That's so, that's such a great point because I think the female gaze for all its talk really struggles to do that. And I think that's why when we, you know, uh, look at female photographers who do shoot uh, other women in like a technically erotic way, it misses that. Yeah, I think honestly, it's like the turn to selfie culture. I mean, we might be able to find our own best angles. There's a different type of best angle. You know what I mean? Like we can find our own best angles that we think are best and we can put out like this like contrived image of ourselves publicly. But like really most people look the most beautiful and like in the eyes of like another person, I think, who catches them and like in the right position. Like, I don't think that any person could ever even see themselves in that position. This is kind of reminding me of the whole parade thing because their whole business model is sending the clothes to girls and then having them self-direct photo shoots. Something about the whole like self-timer vibe is so unsexy. Yeah, because you're literally sitting in your room taking pictures of yourself in dramatically unsexy underwear for a brand to post on the internet and it's like not designated for the eyes of someone who you are intimately connected with yeah exactly. which i think is like very unsexy thing to do yeah like where where what is the sacred place i can meet you at type thing i don't know if that makes sense you know what i mean like and also because like I think that when you take pictures of yourself, like in your underwear, and you're they're destined for the eyes of someone who you like want to fuck or are fucking or something, you're not going to posture yourself in the same way that you are when you're posing in your underwear for your random Instagram followers. So, yeah, yeah, ugh. Um, <laughs> we should try to get a well, parade sponsorship. <laughs> they're our first sponsor. <laughs> Psych. <laughs> they were so fucking ugly. No, I've already waged war against them. So, like, um, your tweet about anyone who wears parade underwear being the unfuckable class biz, it lives in my head rent free. It's so fucking true. Well, well, let's do an episode on parade and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, I want to I want to speak to a parade a <laughs> pair of parade underwear. I'd like to speak I to the manager. <laughs> no, but I just want to I want to like hold <laughs> hold communion with a pair of parade underwear and see what it tells me about its life and its life cycle (laughs) uh anyways um any last words i'm very hungry (laughs) yeah Yeah, i have to be super bad okay well i think we really uh did a really good job honestly um i really this was great yeah we nailed this yay good job everyone On the next episode of NIMFET Alumni, we will investigate the chaotic implosion of American Apparel in 2015. We'll forensically recount the details of Dove Charney's various legal troubles and finally crack the kangaroo case. Is Dove Charney a schizophrenic genius or a libertarian pervert?